Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 is our goal here today. It's a new section of the book of Ephesians. We're at a, a transition point, a hinge point in the book. I'll remind you briefly of the context where we left off, but we're beginning a new chapter. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 will be our goal. And recall with me the, the, the overall thought flow to the book of Ephesians and what we've studied thus far. The book of Ephesians can be pretty neatly divided in half. First three chapters, latter three chapters. First three chapters are all about doctrine, the, uh, really the, the belief and, and the blessings that the believer has in Christ. This, the latter half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, is all about our duty, how we are to behave as believers in Christ. And so we'll see that's a much larger hinge point in the book when we get there. We'll see that. But as we examine the flow of thought of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, we look first at the possessions that we have in Christ, that glorious hymn to the triune God that Paul begins with in Ephesians chapter 1. That is then followed by a prayer for enlightenment after Paul teaches and, and praises God, you know, and, and teaches the uh, congregation by praising God and recording that hymn in the first 14 verses of the chapter. He then prays that God would grant to the believers the enlightenment to understand those blessings that he just uh, described. Well, that prayer of enlightenment is then followed by really the heart of the book of Ephesians. We've spent the last month or so, uh, in fact, a little longer. It took, it took us almost two months to get through chapter two of the book of Ephesians. And that is really the heartbeat to the book. Everything leads up to it and everything flows down from it and looks back, reflecting upon the core ideas of our position in Christ as they are presented in Ephesians chapter two. We wrapped up our study of that last week, if you were with us. But today, we're going to begin chapter 3, and we're going to subdivide it further in just a moment. But chapter 3 is all about this prayer for enablement that Paul prays on behalf of the Ephesian believers. I mentioned this several weeks back in our study of the prayer of enlightenment in chapter 1. I mentioned it also in our introduction to the book of Ephesians. But the book of Ephesians is fascinating in many ways. One of the things that fascinates me the most is this these two prayers, an enormous amount of ink is dedicated to record two prayers of the Apostle Paul on behalf of the Ephesian believers. One in chapter one for enlightenment, a prayer for enlightenment, that they would understand the truth that, that Paul is trying to teach them. But then he prays not merely for enlightenment, but for enablement. And really, the entirety of chapter three is given over to that prayer, though the prayer itself does not begin till verse 14, and I'll explain that. But nonetheless, these two prayers give us an exceeding amount of insight into not only the heart of the Apostle Paul and the, the, his desire for growth in, you know, in these believers, but then, of course, it gives us insight on where we should be growing as believers. In other words, what do we need? If you had an apostle specifically pray for you, what would he pray for on your behalf? Well, you don't have to ask that question. It's answered for us in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul thinks the most important things that you need is, number one, enlightenment concerning our blessings and privileges, the gospel that we have in Christ. We talked about that back in chapter one, but also we need enablement to live according to the way that God has designed us to live. And that's his prayer in chapter three. 
more on that to follow. But as we look at chapter 3, though the entirety of the, the chapter, in a sense, is devoted to this prayer, the prayer for enablement itself does not actually begin till chapter uh, 3, verse 14. Halfway through the chapter, then we have, a little over halfway through the chapter, two-thirds through the chapter, then we have the actual prayer recorded. What's interesting is that the first section of the chapter is actually a digression of thought. What we'll see here this morning will begin that digression of thought that Paul gives us in the first 13 verses by looking at the plan of God as Paul articulates it in verses 1 to 7, and then the purpose of the church as he articulates it in verses 8 to 13. And we'll save that sermon for next week or, you know, and if we can get through all of that in one week. But this digression of thought is rather obvious as you read the text. In fact, notice verse uh, 1. Look, if you've got your Bible open, look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. Notice it says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And then he says, If you have heard the dispensation of the grace of God, etc. He, he goes on a digression. Now jump to verse 14. He says, For this cause... I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, verse 1 and verse 14 are parallel. He begins his prayer, or it's about, it seems like he's about to begin his prayer in verse 1. But then he pauses, and he, and he gives us this interesting digression of thought, which ends up being very profound, and, and it teaches us, it clarifies several things that, uh, that Paul wants to clarify for his Ephesian readers. But then he gets back to where he started the chapter in verse 14, and he says, okay, where, did, where was I, right? I love how Paul does. I mean, I can relate to that, right? It's like, hey, let me share with you a thought. Wait a minute, I got a thought. Wait, I got a thought thought on that thought. And then it's like, where was I? Okay, back to the original thought, all right? So it's like, that's kind of where Paul's at. He's like, just keep up with me, okay? But he says, for this cause, and, it's, and then he'll later pick it up. Well, for this cause, I'm bowing my knee. Right? And let me get back to what I was originally saying. But this digression is rather interesting. So notice again what I just pointed out. But after describing the new status and the privileges of the Gentiles as part of the new people of God, that's what we talked about in chapter 2. That's the big thought from verse 11 to verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. After Paul describes that, then he appears to begin this second intercessory prayer for the readers. Again, you can see that by comparing verse 1 and verse 14. But then he suddenly breaks it off in order to explain his divinely commissioned role as a steward of the grace of God. So there's a really simple purpose to this digression, at least these first seven verses that we're going to look at here this morning, and that's simply this. We'll see in verse 1, Paul introduces himself in verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, and then he pauses. And it's like he, he then has to explain why he is a prisoner, right? He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus because it's been entrusted to him the mystery of, of, of God. He's been given the, the job, entrusted with the job of declaring the gospel or what he calls the mystery of God. And so he's going to expound upon this idea of the mystery of God for a few verses, from verse 2 to verse 7, but all of that is really intended to explain why he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul in prison? Well, he's got to explain that really quick. And so that's the purpose of this digression. And yet as he does this, 
Like I said, it's insightful. There's a lot of profound observations we can gain from this, can I, dare I say, rabbit trail from the Apostle Paul, right? He's just like a true rabbi, right? He's like, let me say this, and then rabbit trail, and then I'll get back to it. But notice with me, let's read the text real quick, and then we'll come back and analyze it, okay? Ephesians 3, verse 1 says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and again, if you, so notice the digression. He doesn't even finish with the, you know, you have the subject, verb. Well, he doesn't even give us the verb till later. He says, well, if, verse 2, here's his digression of thought. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Now, if we were to continue to read, notice that digression continues. We won't get to this today, but let me just keep reading so you see the, the, the digression and the flow of thought. But verse 8, he says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We'll have to save that for next week, but I love that phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, he says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God and created who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In other words, notice verse 13 gives us an explanation for his digression. He says, I don't want you to grow faint. I don't want you to be discouraged because of the tribulations that I'm going through. What tribulations, Paul? Well, he just told us back in verse one, I'm a prisoner. Paul is in prison. He is in chains. It's his cross to bear, his trial to endure. And he says, but I don't want you to be discouraged by the fact that I'm going through this. So he digresses for 12 verses to describe why he is in prison and why he is going through this. And God has a purpose to it all. So again, going back to these you know, big ideas, he wants to explain the overall plan of God, not only in his life, but in human history, and how Paul is just a you know, part of what God's doing through human history, and the larger purpose being that of the church, the purpose of the church. So he digresses to explain the plan of God and the purpose of the church in order that they would not be discouraged by the fact that he is in prison. And so then he gets to his prayer of enablement. Does that make sense? Are you seeing the thought flow? Sometimes if you're reading, it's like you get a little lost and you're like, wait a minute, what's he doing? Well, again, he's about to begin his prayer, but he stops, digresses, and explains a couple of things they need to understand before he gets to the prayer. So let's go back. Let's look at verse one. Okay, so let's notice how Paul must explain his imprisonment. Okay, look again at verse one. He says, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, right? He's not even finished the sentence yet as we finish the verse. But the point is, as Paul begins his prayer, he describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We see him actually call himself this, describe himself in this way in multiple places in the New Testament, particularly the prison epistles, right? There's four of these epistles, recall. 
that he writes while in prison, a couple of others that we suspect he was also in prison when he wrote, but the four that he wrote during his first Roman imprisonment we lump together and call the prison epistles. But he's describing himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, it is then as if, while he's writing this, he says, I, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and then it's like it dawns on him that he realizes that he needs to elaborate on the description with a short digression. In other words, I need to tell you why I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Again, this digression answers an objection that might arise in the minds of the readers regarding Paul's uh, being a prisoner. In other words, as you are try to put yourself in the shoes of the original Ephesian readers, and you're starting to wonder, well, wait a minute, like, why are you in prison? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's, it, there, there, maybe there's a little question mark as to the integrity and credentials of the Apostle Paul. Does he deserve to be in prison? Like, what did he do? Did he murder someone? Right? What, what's happening here? And so the idea is, of course, Paul must explain why he is in prison. So he does so. This is the purpose of this digression. Now, again, while the readers might expect him to say that he's a prisoner of Caesar, because he technically is, right? He's about to appear before Emperor Nero. He clarifies that he is rather a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He labels himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The point is that Christ Jesus is the one that's ultimately in charge, that he, Paul, is in prison on behalf of Christ Jesus. He is commissioned by Christ Jesus to do a job, and that job is what landed him in prison. He didn't do anything criminal. Rather, he was being obedient to God. So again, put it another way, the reason for Paul's incarceration has nothing to do with a moral lapse, God's displeasure, or anything that should cause the reader's concern. Rather, Paul is in prison because he has been faithful in proclaiming the mystery of God which has been entrusted to him. Keep a finger here in the book of Ephesians. We'll be back, but go to the book of Acts. Many of you perhaps will recall this in our study of the book of Acts, which we concluded a while back. But in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 26, I want to look at two brief passages that confirm the fact that Paul would indeed carry out the commission that God gave to him and that that commission would land him into trouble with the Roman authorities, the civil authorities. Look at Acts chapter 9. Context of Acts chapter 9, recall, is Paul's conversion narrative. This is the road to Damascus experience, if, you're, if you recall this. Well, we'll skip ahead because the actual uh, account of his conversion is the first several verses of the chapter. But recall that while God appears to him, Christ, the risen Christ, appears to Paul, he does so with bright light, which blinds the apostle Paul, right, at this time called Saul. But he is blinded, and he's sitting in Damascus. So God comes to Ananias, a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and he sends Ananias to not only heal Paul of his blindness, but also commission Paul to give him an official commission. And so this conversation that takes place between Christ and Ananias uh, transpires for a few verses. But then note, pick it up in verse 13 for sake of context. It says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Do you remember this? It kind of makes me laugh, but this is true of all of us. God tells us to do something. He gives us a commission. 
and then we come up with all the reasons why it's a bad idea. You know what I'm saying? We're like, Lord, I don't know if you really thought through this one. <laughs> because don't you realize X, Y, Z, you know? Well, here we see God come to Ananias and he says, all right, go heal and commission this guy called Saul because he's going to become ultimately what we call, who we call the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Ananias says, do you not know what this guy has done? Right? Because at this time he's, he's uh, working on behalf of Judaism, persecuting the, the, uh, the Christian movement. So Ananias hesitates, and he says, I don't know if this is a good idea. Well, verse 14, he says, and here he has authority. Again, Ananias still speaking, verse 14. He says, here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on your name. In other words, he came here to arrest us. But the Lord says unto him, verse 15, go your way for, because, here's the reason, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias, verse 17, went his way. He says, all right, Lord, if that's what you want to do. And he does, and he obeys. And what's profound is, is he says, when you go and you talk to him, he says, I want you to know that God has chosen him to be this vessel but he's going to suffer. It's going to be hard for this guy. Well, now, take that thought and go to Acts 26. Okay, do you remember this? This is Acts 26. Pop forward a few chapters in the book of Acts. In chapter 26, Paul has already been arrested. He has been shipped down. Remember, he was accused of crossing that barrier. Remember this we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He was accused of taking a Gentile beyond the barrier that they were allowed to go in on, in the Temple Mount. Uh, that was, it wasn't true. It was a false accusation, but nonetheless, it did cause a riot. It did lead to Paul's arrest. He is uh, incarcerated by the Romans in the Fortress Antonia atop the Temple Mount until it's discovered that there is a plot against his life by the, the, the Jewish people that are opposed to Paul. So this plot then being discovered and discovered that Paul is a Roman citizen that needs to be protected by Roman law, then the Roman authorities say, well, we got to ship him out of here. So they ship him from Jerusalem down to Caesarea. Remember this? Caesarea Maritima, coast, coastal city built by Herod the Great many decades before. And what happens is he's now incarcerated in Caesarea for two years before he's shipped to Rome, where he'll be incarcerated for two more years. But during his incarceration in Caesarea, he has several hearings before the various civil authorities, one of which is a guy by the name of Herod Agrippa. That's recorded in our chapter here in Acts 26. Okay, so now look at verse 19 of this same chapter. This is Paul speaking. He says, whereupon, O King Agrippa, so this is Paul Speaking to Agrippa, Agrippa is functioning as the judge, kind of overseer of this hearing. Paul is in chains, and he says, all right, he's answering for his, you know, uh, his cause before Agrippa. He says this, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Now, again, I'm kind of picking it up in the middle of the context here, but what Paul does is he starts by telling King Agrippa of his testimony. He basically rehearses the events of Acts chapter 9. He says, well, I was a Jew, and I was zealous, and I went to arrest Christians, and then guess what? Jesus showed up, right? 
Didn't see that one coming. And then Jesus commissioned me to become an apostle of, of you know, his in the Christian movement. And then it says, verse again, picking up verse 19, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, when Jesus told Paul to go preach the, the risen Christ, what did Paul do? He went and preached the risen Christ because he just saw the risen Christ. And he says, wow, you're, you're real. You're legit. So he says, all right, I'm going to do what you say. And so he obeys the commission. Verse 20 he says, but he showed first to them at Damascus and at Jerusalem. So what did he start doing? He started preaching first in Damascus, which is ironic because he went there to arrest all those Christians. Then he becomes a Christian and he starts preaching Christianity in Damascus, right? What a great series of events, right? I mean, this is fun. So he says he, he first preaches in Damascus, then Jerusalem, he says, and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. And what was he preaching? In verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes, in other words, because I am preaching Christianity, verse 21, for these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. All right, that's the riot that led to his arrest. That's recorded in chapter 21. He says, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. In other words, I'm preaching Christianity because it was prophesied, and God has fulfilled this in the coming of Christ. But then in verse 23, he says that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light in the people and to the Gentiles. Now, again, what's fascinating is, is and we really need to get back to Ephesians, <laughs> but as it says, he's giving this before Agrippa. It says in the next verse, Festus looks at him. He says, man, you're crazy. Right? He says, Paul, you're mad. You, all this learning has driven you insane. And Paul then turns and he says, I'm not insane. And he goes on to defend his case. It's a great scene. All right? We've talked about it before. But the point is, do you see these connections? Go back to Ephesians and notice that he's simply reminding his Ephesian readers that the reason he is in prison is because, as he says before Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, he obeyed God, he preached Christ, that got him in trouble, landed him in prison. So the point is, Paul is saying, and in, in, in essence, we ought look to him as an example, an inspirational example of someone who is faithfully proclaiming the riches of Christ, regardless of the cost. He's going to do what's right, even if it lands him in prison. Does that make sense? So he is an inspirational example to his readers regarding this all-important task of proclaiming the riches of Christ. That's his point. But then he has to go on, and he's still elaborating, still making the same point, but he wants to elaborate upon this idea of the riches of Christ the mystery of the gospel. So in verse 2 through verse 7, and that's as far as we can make it today, most likely, but we'll see that he begins to expound on this idea of the mystery. Notice it says in verse 2, again, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, right? He says, I'm in prison because I was trying to preach to you guys, right? He says, because they're the Gentile audience that he was, he was preaching to, part of that Gentile audience. But he says, if... Verse 2, you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. In other words, he 
tells us, he expounds in verse 2, that God has given Paul a unique commission, which he here calls a dispensation or a stewardship. Same word. So Paul calls this commission that Christ gave to him to preach the gospel, he calls it a dispensation or a stewardship. This is Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And he is calling this a stewardship that was given to him by God. Now, if you're not familiar with this term, the term stewardship or dispensation, depending on your English translation, this word was actually used earlier in the book of Ephesians, back in chapter 1 and verse 10, to refer to God's grand plan of reconsolidating all of creation beneath the headship of Christ. Do you remember that? We gave a little sliver of a sermon to that idea. One of my favorite concepts is, is this idea of the philosophy of history, that all of history is going somewhere, that God is working, he is orchestrating. In other words, as we're talking about today, the purpose of the sermon, or the title of the sermon is the plan of God. There is a plan of God that governs history. Do you believe that? Boy, if you don't believe that, then, man, it's depressing. I just look around the world and you're like, wow, I mean, this is a mess. But, and it is a mess, but to recognize that there is a plan, there's a purpose to it all. God is not going to allow evil to triumph. Rather, he is allowing evil to have its day for a time, and then he's going to make it all right. And that sort of plan of God is what Paul gave us an insight uh, in into all the way back in chapter 1. In verse 10, when he refers to God's plan as this great dispensation or stewardship, However, Paul's use of the same term here in our text in Ephesians chapter 3 means that Paul has been given a place of responsibility in that plan. God is doing something, but Paul is a steward. He has a job that was entrusted to him, and he has, he's a cog, if you will, in, in the system the, of what God is attempting to accomplish. And so Paul's job is to expound what he calls the mystery of God. And that's what it means to be a steward. Something is entrusted to you, and it's your job to do the task and report back to the person who commissioned you. And so that's what Paul says. He, that's who he is. I have a job to do. And what is his job? He says, my job is to preach the mystery of God. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, what it means, the mystery of God, let me elaborate just briefly, all right? So let me just show you a couple parallel passages. Uh, you have them on the screen. First Corinthians chapter 4. Let me just go to that one real briefly, and we'll go to Colossians 1. But he says the same thing. He describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as he's describing his apostolic ministry. He says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Do you see that? He says, let no man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and the stewards of God, uh, stewards of the mystery of, of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet I am, uh, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. I love this, right? In other words, and this is another whole sermon in a sermon, but the Corinthians were starting to doubt Paul and his apostolic commission. And he says, I don't really care if you judge me because my real judge is the one who commissioned me. That's his point. He says, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. I will stand before God one day and God will judge how I did. He says, and God's judgment and your judgment may not actually match up. 
That's what he says. He says, so don't judge anything before it's time. And that's a profound lesson, right, that we can all learn because how many of us do that, right? We leap to conclusions and assumptions and we judge situations and people in light of, you know, not in light of all the evidence. We're not omniscient beings like God is. And we judge people with insufficient information and we condemn them in our minds and we relate to them based upon that condemnation that we passed in our own judgment only to be proved later that we were dead wrong. Well, that's what the Corinthians were doing to Paul. And Paul says, well, it doesn't matter what you think. He says, because ultimately, I don't stand before you. You're not my judge. God is my judge because I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. All right? So what then does that mean? Well, Colossians chapter 1. All right, this is the other, one of the other prison epistles. In Colossians 1, verse 25, recall this. I know... Uh, in our, in our introduction to the book of Ephesians, do you remember this? Ephesians and Colossians are intertwined books. He wrote Colossians first, most likely, to the Colossian believers to address the heresy that was present in Colossae. But then he writes the book of Ephesians to the Ephesian believers in order to inoculate them against that heresy. Do you remember this? So it's no surprise then that the same thought that he's trying to develop here in Ephesians chapter 3, he's already spoken of in Colossians 1. Are you with me? They're parallel passages. But what's fascinating is he gives us an interesting definition to a mystery in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 25. So again, uh, back up. He's in verse, the end of verse 23, he talks about the gospel that he has been made a minister of, right? So same, con same concept. Paul is talking about his job to preach the gospel. But then he says, verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. In other words, Paul's preaching the gospel and is he suffering because of it? You bet, right? This is another one of the prison epistles. He's in prison because he was preaching faithfully the cause of Christ. But then he says, verse 25, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of the stewardship of God, which is given me, uh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God has made known what the riches of the glory of the mystery of the among the Gentiles, etc. What's the point? Well, again, that parallel passage, he's going to say the same thing in Ephesians. Back to Ephesians 3. Notice how he defines a mystery. Back to Ephesians 3. We just read verse 2. He says, I am a minister of God. He says, I've been given this stewardship of the grace of God, a job to do, which is preach the gospel. And he goes on in verse 3, he says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages. Notice this, we just read it in Colossians 1.26, it's parallel. Here it is, Ephesians 3.5. He says, Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, Paul defines for us what a mystery is. The mystery... Paul is expounding with something that was unknown in the period of the Old Testament. That's what Colossians 1, 25 and 26 tells us. Ephesians 3, verse 5. 
We could also, we won't for sake of time, but you could also go to Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, gives us the exact same concept. But in New Testament speak, when Paul is talking about a mystery, he's talking about something that was true of God's plan and God's purposes, but it wasn't revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. It wasn't revealed to the prophets of the Old Testament. Rather, it was something that was revealed only to the New Testament apostles and prophets. Does that make sense? It's new information given at a later time when that time is appropriate. We have these same sort of conversations with our kids, do we not? As you're teaching your children, you are doing in miniature what God is doing in mega, right, in the big picture throughout the Bible. Progressive revelation. Do you tell all of your children everything that they need to know when they're two years old? No, they're, why? Well, they're not going to get it, right? They need to learn the ABCs first. Then they learn how hooked on phonics, right, works for them. And then it turns to reading and writing and arithmetic. And then you do history and then you add on all the other stuff, okay? And then once they graduate and they think they're know-it-alls, then you teach them that they don't know anything <laughs> because then they got to get a job, <laughs> And then they got to face real life. And then it's like, oh, and, and as, you, as you are raising your children, then what you're doing is you are progressively over time teaching them the concepts that they need to have. But you're not going to have the in-depth marriage conversations about marriage with your five-year-old. Why? Because it doesn't apply to them. And they're not going to get it anyways. But as they grow and they mature and they find that significant other in their life and everything starts getting exciting and they have the butterflies in the stomach and everything, well, now it's time to have the marriage conversation, right? Well, that's the whole idea of progressive revelation. So God's doing the same thing. God is the all-wise Heavenly Father. And as a result, he knows what to teach us, when to teach us, and in what way. Well, Paul is saying... That's what a mystery is. It's something that God has already intended to do. It's part of the overall plan of God that he has already put in place in his mind and in his purposes. He's already put that in place, but he didn't yet clue us in on it until later when it was important for us to know. All right? So that's what Paul is doing. He's saying that he has received, notice verse 3, by revelation. Revelation means God speaks directly to him. He says, I have received by revelation that which uh, I wrote to you previously in just a few words. When Paul received this is a bit of a matter of debate, but it's most likely placed, if you read Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, Paul gives us an interesting insight that as soon as he was converted, do you remember this? He was saved or converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. We just you know, dipped into that passage a few moments ago. But after his conversion, he goes and he spends a significant amount of time. It says three years in Arabia, and it might also include some of his other early travels. But it says he spends three years before he really begins the process of his, of his commission. He's converted, and he's commissioned to be an apostle of the Gentiles. But before he starts his job, there's a three-year gap. And even then, I mean, we could get more detail in the chronology. Even then, he starts the process and he's, he's benched for about 10 years before he's sent out as a missionary in Acts chapter 13, if you remember all the chronology in our study of the book of Acts. 
But the point is, it's most likely while Paul is in Arabia, just after his conversion, that God reveals to him. In other words, just like Christ showed up to him on the road to Damascus in bright, beaming light, blinding the Apostle Paul, converting the Apostle Paul, commissioning the Apostle Paul, then Christ showed up again later at some point, probably when he was in Arabia. As well, and we kind of just assume that that's probably the best place to fit it based upon the chronology of Galatians 1, Acts 9, etc. But while he is in that period of training, isn't that important? Have you ever been given a job, a commission, but then they didn't tell you how to do that job? And so you had no training? Man, is that frustrating. And so it's, it's, it's important to say, oh, all right, Paul, here's your job, but here is how you do that job. Here's your training period. Here's your probationary period, if you will. And his training period was essentially, well, at least these three years, like I said, you could really tack on the next 10 before he goes out as a, as a missionary church planner in Acts chapter 13. But during that training period, he received revelation. Jesus shows up to him, giving him the mysteries of the gospel, revealing to him. He's pulling back the curtain. We'll talk about it in just a second. But that's one of the ideas of the word mystery. He's pulling back the curtain, Jesus is, giving Paul insight into what God's plan is through the ages and what Paul's part is in that plan. I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. If you love God and you desire to serve God, then you're going to ask the same question that the Apostle Paul asked. Right? He says, who are you, Lord, in Acts chapter 9? And then he says, what do you want me to do? Those are the two most foundational, fundamental questions you can ask as a Christian. Number one, who are you, Lord? Your relationship with God is all about getting to know him. Who are you, Lord? That's the most important question you can ask. It's the first question you ask. Get to know your Savior. But then he says, secondly, what do you want me to do? Because if he is genuinely Lord, Master, then he can decide what we do. He can direct our life. He can give us a commission. Well, that's what Paul does. That's what he receives. And Paul is, has already told his readers about it. In fact, he tells us at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, Paul wants his readers to understand that he has just wrote down that very mystery. They have just finished reading chapter 2. And that's where the mystery that he received directly from God is recorded. He says in verse, again, three, he says, I've received this by revelation. He says, and I made, uh, and that was made known unto me. He says, as I wrote afore in few words. In other words, I got a lot more to say. I just gave you a little bit of it, but I wrote it down just prior. What's he talking about? He's talking about chapter two. He's talking about what we just finished studying, chapter two, verses 11 to 22. He says, I just wrote this down. He says, and when you read it, I want you to understand, verse 4, my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I, why did I write this down and share it to you? Because I want you to understand that I received this directly from God. God revealed this to me, and I'm revealing it to you. Now, this, this is such an interesting concept, because the term mystery, that's how it's used in a New Testament concept, context, is that it's a part of the plan of God that he has been planning all along, but he didn't tell us about it until New Testament times. He unveiled the mystery. It was a secret. Now it's not because God told us about it. He advanced his plan. He clued us in. 
We became God's confidants as he reveals to us his purposes and his plans. But Paul probably also had a contextualizing strategy at work when he uses this word mystery. Let me tell you about it. In the city of Ephesus, do you remember this? We talked about this back in our uh, introduction to Ephesians. But in the city of Ephesus, there were many religious cults, the most famous of which was the cult of Diana or Artemis. Artemis being the Greek term, Diana being the Roman term. But it's a goddess whose temple was located, whose main temple, large temple, was located in Ephesus. But that religious cult used what they called mysteries. Now, what is a mystery? Well, in paganism, a mystery was a special secret given only to the cult initiates. Yet every cult claimed to have the next best secret. To what? Well, all sorts of things like the origin of life, meaning, purpose of life, right? All the secrets that you need to live life, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, not a perfect analogy, but it's kind of like today. You ever seen those ads that pop up, those commercials that come online and they just tell you, do you want to fix your whatever? Do you want to fix your hair loss problem? Do you want to fix your, you know, weight loss problem? Do you want to fix your, you know, and they just come up with, and then they say, click here, you know, or whatever. And it's like, and we'll tell you the greatest secret that has never been revealed. Just give us your money and then we'll give you the secret and then it'll fix your life. Well, in a sense, the mystery cults were kind of like that. They're like, okay, we've got the insider information you need to live life, right? With purpose and meaning and et cetera. But every cult, because there's a cult on every corner, every cult has its own mystery, but you had to join the cult to get the secret to see if it worked. Does that make sense? Well, as this is happening, the Ephesian believers as pagans, as Gentiles before they came to Christ would have exhausted themselves trying to try the next new thing. Many people, we have this again historically documented in a number of sources, but many people were members of multiple cults because they were trying the next best thing. I'm going to try worshiping, you know, Artemis. I'm going to try, if that doesn't work, I'll go try the Egyptian goddess, you know, you know, Isis and Osiris, and we'll try that for a while. And then if that doesn't work, we'll go to Sibylle. And if that doesn't work, you get the point. But what Paul is saying is that because Christ is the mystery of God, the definite revelation of the one true God, then the readers can forsake all of those inferior pseudo-mysteries that paganism is dangling out in front of them. They can walk away. They can reject those. Why? Well, because they can come to Christ, who is the revelation. He is the revelation of the true God. The true God has spoken. He has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Christ. And he says, this is the only secret that you need to know. That's what he's saying. Pretty profound concept. Well, what is the secret? Well, again, he summarizes in verse 6 what he's already expounded on back in chapter 2. But just look with me again, verse 6. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of this promise in Christ by the gospel. This is the secret that has been unveiled. This is what is being revealed. The mystery is twofold, according to verse 6. First, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, right? In other words, that's probably what he's talking about back in verse four when he talks about the mystery of Christ. In other words, the secret, you remember this? We talked about it a couple weeks ago, that the messianic promise, the Old Testament has been telling us for centuries that the Messiah was coming. 
what he would be like, who he would descend from, what he would do, and what he would accomplish. But we didn't know who the Messiah was until Jesus of Nazareth steps on the scene. He enters human history. Now we know who the Messiah is. The mystery, the secret is out. The mystery has been revealed. We know who Messiah is. So the first mystery that was revealed is most likely the identity of Messiah, which he's alluding to perhaps back up in verse 4. But then secondly, it's the mystery, the secret, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and partakers of God. And that this is, again, we don't need to go back and rehash this with any great detail, but that's what we just finished talking about in chapter 2. Namely, that Paul reveals that at the heart of the mystery of God that he has revealed, that God has revealed, is the fact that Gentiles now share equally with the Jews in the blessings of the new covenant, life with God. This new covenant relationship that God promised back in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the old pro- the Testaments, you know, uh, prophets of the Old Testament, those promises have been fulfilled in Christ, that Jew-Gentile have equality spiritually before God. That was his big theme that we just finished studying in chapter 2. That's the mystery that he is revealing. And Paul brings this out with a threefold repetition of this preposition. In Greek, it's soon, but it's translated typically with or fellow, something like that. But it, it appears three times in this verse that they're fellow heirs, fellow body members, fellow partakers of the promise that God has revealed. Again, we spent much more time Uh, looking at that in the previous chapter, but just by way of summary and review, the mystery is more than the fact that Gentiles were included in God's salvation. There's little mystery in that. God already predicted back in Genesis 12 and Isaiah 42 and many other places in the Old Testament that God would bring salvation to the Gentiles. That's not a new secret, but rather the mystery consists in that the Gentiles now enjoy all the privileges that were once enjoyed exclusively by Israel. Not only do they enjoy those privileges that were once exclusively enjoyed by Israel, but as the new body of Christ, the church, which he's going to talk about more, we'll talk about it more next week because he talks about it in verse 8 to 13, but this new entity that he calls the body of Christ or the church not only enjoys the privileges that were once enjoyed exclusively by Israel, but they enjoy greater privileges because of the promised Holy Spirit of God that has arrived. That's a big theme in the book of Ephesians, recall? That we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that he is the the down payment of this grand inheritance. And that privilege and enjoyment that we have of of possessing the Spirit of God is a blessed uh, mystery that's been revealed in the new covenant. But he then wraps it up, verse 7. He says, this mystery that he's just been proclaiming, he says again, verse 7, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Let's contemplate this verse together for just a moment. See how practical it is for you and I, you and I today. And then we'll transition as the children will come over and we'll participate in communion here today. But before we transition, notice verse 7. Paul has been given, he says in this verse, the privilege, yea, even the gift of being a servant to expound this glorious mystery to the Gentiles and inform them of their new privileged status. He says, I have been made a minister of this. It's a privilege for Paul to preach the gospel. And first of all, I mean, we could pause on that. For sake of time, we can't develop it fully. But the idea of the privilege we have in Christ, those two questions. Remember, Paul says, who are you, Lord? Number one. Number two, what do you want me to do? 
It's a privilege to know God. And it's a privilege to serve God. Many people want to sit on the sidelines and not get involved in the Great Commission. We've been given the same commission, in a sense, that Paul was given. Jesus gave it to all of his followers. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. He gave us that commission to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them, right, baptizing them and teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you, Jesus says. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. That promise, that commission rather, is something that has been leveled upon all of us. We are all, as believers, obligated to participate, and, but it's more than an obligation. It's a privilege to serve the king who died for me. What a privilege it is. That's what Paul is, he's reveling in that here in this verse. God has made me a minister of this. I get to serve, that's what the word minister means, right? He's, he's serving God and he's playing his part in the overall plan of God. I don't know about you, but as we work our way through this passage, both this week and next, when I first grasped this in my own walk, in my own life with God, walk with God, my own Christian life rather, this was, it was revolutionary for me because it gave me purpose. Have you ever tried to understand, you know, who you are, where you came from, why you're here, what you're supposed to be doing? Have you ever asked those universal questions? How you answer those questions defines what we call your purpose to life. And as I'm growing up and I'm hitting my, you know, my uh, early teenage years, right around, well, for me, it was, I started asking those questions early because I sat under so many preachers that kept asking me, what's your purpose to life? And I'm like 11 years old. I'm like, I don't know, right? And I'm just like, <laughs> but then I get to about 12 and it hits me. And I'm like, you know what? I, I want a purpose to life. So I start asking, well, maybe I'm going to go into the military. Maybe I'm going to become a firefighter. Maybe I want to be, you know, and I kind of go through the typical list that every young boy has, right? I'm going to be a professional athlete and, you know, <laughs> all the stuff that I'm, I'm not going to be. But, and I start thinking through, where, where am I going to go with life? What's my purpose to life? And then I discovered, and it was, it was a summer, I was 12 years old. It was a summer. I was up at camp, working at camp. I was washing dishes all summer long. And yet, Every morning and evening, there was chapel hour. It was my job, go to sit, you know, be in chapel, sit down, hear the preaching. And there was just a, it was just the providence of God. There was a series of preachers that came and preached throughout that summer that just God really used that summer to just open my eyes to the reality of the big picture of what God is doing in the world. Missions. In fact, there was a guy who was the head of a missions agency that was the speaker for one week at camp. And he would just, he was challenging us. Man, he was a great speaker. And he would just challenge us. He's like, what are you doing with your life? Don't waste your life. You know, and here I am, 12 years old, and I've I've already been asking those questions. What am I going to be when I grow up, right? And then it just, and then it hit me. I'm like, you know what? What's the greatest cause that I could ever dedicate my life to? It's the cause of Christ. It's the Great Commission, because it has eternal value. He, and I still quote him to this day, but the preacher kept saying over and over again throughout the week, he says, there's only a few things that are eternal. God, the word of God, and the souls of men. That's the only thing in this life that will outlive this life to the next. It's the only things that are eternal. God, the word of God, and the souls of men. So he convinced me that, you know what? That is right. And so I, I submitted my heart, my, my life to God's will. And like the apostle Paul, I found purpose that God is doing something cosmically. And I get to be a small part in what God is doing and what God has been doing 
from eternity past to eternity future. The greatest plan, the greatest story ever told, the greatest plan that has ever been unveiled. I get to participate in that. And guess what? So do you. You have a purpose in that. You have a plan. You have a part in the plan of God. Well, what is it? Well, you can get specifics as you go and you serve. But generally speaking, it's the Great Commission. What is your sphere of influence? Are you a child that goes to school that has playmates? Your job is to shine the light of Christ to your schoolmates, to your playmates. It's to be the you know contribute to the cause of Christ. Be a loving, gracious, kind person that tells people of who God is. Are you a parent? Well, you got a great commission. Have you evangelized your children? Are your children believers in Christ? Have you led them through the truths of the gospel? Have you appealed to them to make a decision to trust Christ? If they're believers, have you discipled them? Are you helping guide and direct them? Are you encouraging them to live a life of godly, faithful service in a local church? Realize how many young people grow up and leave the church? Stats are not good. What are you doing to be part of the solution, not part of the problem? That's not just on me. I don't live in all of your homes every day all week, right? I get you for an hour or two a week, and I sit up here, and I plead, and I teach, and then you say, oh, man, that was a great sermon, and then you'll walk away, and you say, man, what was that sermon about? I don't remember. I don't, I don't know. You have the, the bigger impact on your kids. Are you a grandparent? Are you reaching down to the next generation? Are you trying to evangelize and disciple your kids, your grandkids? Yes, Christian school teacher. We've got a few of those in here. Are you investing in that generation? Are you a secular school teacher? Where you may be the only light that those kids get, the only light of the gospel that they will ever see is your life. Do you go to work? Do you have work associates that come to you and ask questions? Someone says, man, I just lost a father-in-law, a son, whatever. Tragedy in their life. They're asking you questions. They're looking for guidance. You ever shined as a light in your workplace, telling people about the cause of Christ? Do you realize you have a part to play in the plan of God? And it is a privilege. It is a blessing. But one more thought, and then we're done. Paul says that he has been given not just the commission, but he's given, been given the power to carry it out. More on this later. It's a sermon for another day. But recall that Paul declares here what he already said back in chapter 1, that God has given us the power to do it. We have a job to do, and God has given us the grace to do it. All we must do is submit to God's plan, to pray for the enabling power that he will, and again, Keep coming back, because that's the rest of Ephesians chapter 3, as Paul prays for this enabling power. Now, as we transition to the Lord's table here today, what I want you to recognize is this is part of the process. Weeks to come, we're going to extrapolate, expound upon the prayer of Paul in particular at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. But in this process, 
understanding my place, my purpose, the power of God that he has equipped me with in order to carry out that purpose and the plan, there's many a time that I lose track of that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're sitting there thinking, man, it's been a long time since I actually asked those questions and thought, who am I shining the light of the gospel to? Am I making a difference in my sphere of influence? If you're here today and, and perhaps you are confronted by the reality that you're really failing in that endeavor, all of us, there's room for improvement, right? All of us can do better than we are doing currently, but nonetheless, many of us need to repent of the sin of not doing it at all. Many of us are sitting on the sidelines and doing nothing. So let me ask you, if you are convicted by that reality, then I invite you. Here in just a few moments as we partake of the Lord's table, we'll begin with that moment of silence. What's the purpose of the moment of silence? Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11? The purpose of the moment of silence is for you to get with God. As Paul says, let every person examine themselves. If you feel the need to repent of your lack of involvement in the Great Commission, being a sphere of influence in your local assembly, your local community, your local school, whatever, wherever you are, if you're not engaged in the plan of God as Paul is here describing, then we need to repent of that. We need to ask God's forgiveness and we need to ask for God's grace. And that's what Paul's going to do later in the, in the chapter, in Ephesians chapter 3. He's going to fall on his knees and he's going to pray for God to give us that power. So I invite you in these few moments of silence that we'll partake of in just a moment to get with God on your own, to ask God to do in your heart what he needs to do to draw you to himself, to employ you in the purpose and the plan of God that he's carrying out down through the ages. So in just a moment, we'll take that moment of silence and after which I'll close in prayer as we traditionally do. I'll invite the men to come forward who will be helping us hand out the elements and then as we partake of those elements, as the pianist plays, etc., take these moments to contemplate why Christ died for you and what you are doing in light of that. All right, ask those two questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? All right, let's close in prayer and take that moment of silence, after which I will close that in prayer. All right, Father, thank you so much for this passage of scripture, the importance of these moments that we share together. We pray your blessing, Lord, as we participate in the Lord's table here today, and we attempt to remember, to commemorate who you are and what you've done for us. You who died for us and rose again so that we might not only have our sins forgiven and our eternity secured, but we can also have a purpose in your overall plan. We can have a part to play in what you are doing to transform the world for the cause of Christ. Lord, thank you for this blessed privilege. We pray as we contemplate these things in these moments to follow that you would convict our hearts where appropriate, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would lead us to confess our faults, to receive your forgiveness, to once again enjoy your fellowship and to participate in your commission. So we commit these things to you in Christ's name, amen. Let's take that moment of silence where you go before God on your own, and then we'll begin the Lord's table. Let's take that moment of silence.